The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. It's been said of his life, he was abandoned early by a dying mother. He was favored harmfully by a foolish father. He was hated desperately by jealous brothers. He's victimized violently, confined mercilessly, sold greedily, and forsaken thoroughly. And all of this before his 18th birthday. I'm talking about the story of Joseph. And we read part of it in our scripture reading. I would ask you if you would turn to Exodus chapter 1. And today we're going to finish our series on God's attributes and start a new study verse by verse through this book. And and there's an attribute that's actually going to be our bridge to this new series. It's the backstory through which we will look at the story of Joseph and his family that are introduced at the start of this book. Today we're going to see the providence of God and the preface to Exodus. This is just going to be really introducing the book today. The next message will cover the rest of chapter 1 and then the following week, Lord willing, chapter 2, and we'll be trying to take the narrative sections as we go. But Exodus 1, verse 1, this is the word of God. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. This is the preface to the book of Exodus in our Bibles. But in the original, the first five books were all part of one scroll. To this day, the Jews call it the Torah. If you were to go into a synagogue on the, on the Sabbath anywhere around the world yesterday, there would have been this large scroll that would be brought out, and they would read portions of the Torah, the first five books of our Bible. Synagogues today read consecutively from it. Exodus 1 is a continuation of what we call Genesis. And so we need to spend some time in Genesis today to really start and get a running start to this sequel saga, if you will, because Exodus 1 verse 5 ends with, Joseph was already in Egypt. That's just a few words to describe Genesis 37 to 50, that story of how he came to be already in Egypt. And there's an assumption you know that story, and even those of you who do know that story, there's elements of that story that set up this continuation of the story. Young's literal translation starts Exodus 1, 1, and these are the names. There's the Hebrew conjunction for and, the, 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 the grammar marker for consecutive action. And so this is picking up at the end of Genesis. And just look back at Genesis 50 for how this prequel to Exodus left off. And, and there may have just been a blank line between them in the original. Genesis 50, verse 24, and, that's the same Hebrew at the start of Exodus. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up from 
out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. This is speaking from Egypt. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And then... The scroll continues the thought in the next chapter. And these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. That's Exodus 1.1, but it's all one story. And the to-be-continued part is this. When is God going to visit them like he promised? When is he going to take these descendants of these sons of Israel? of Jacob, Joseph's brothers, when is he going to bring them up to that land that he had promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob? Because this wasn't their home. Joseph knew that. He's making them promise solemnly, make sure you're going to bring my remains to that land, that promised land. And so the the book of Genesis ends with a bit of a a cliffhanger, if you will. And, and, And we also need a bit of cliff notes on on Genesis, because these stories are connected. And Exodus 13 is going to say, in the Exodus, when they went out of Egypt, they carried the bones of Joseph with them. They fulfilled that that promise in the Exodus. And so Exodus is, we might say, Torah, episode 2. And the writer is Moses, and he he assumes that you know these characters from the prior episodes. If you were to just decide, you know, I'm going to read from J.R.R. Tolkien. I'm going to start with the return of the king. And you start reading about all these characters, these hobbits and these wizards and these elves, and you're not quite understanding what's what's going on here. Or maybe you were to start watching a series of movies at episode 7 or episode 3.5, and you're pretty confused about what's going on. Or you walk into a, an episode of, of Downtown Abbey randomly and you, you don't understand what's going on with these characters and these ladies. Why do they have, have issues? And then your wife maybe says, just be quiet. You can't just come in and ask questions. <laughs> or if you were to start watching the series Lost mid-season, you would be lost as well. And so Moses doesn't want you to be lost or confused or wondering, who are these people? He starts with the review. It's kind of like previously in Torah. And the rest of chapter 1, then after introducing these characters, fast-forwards hundreds of years after Israel came to Egypt. So the story is going to pick up hundreds of years later, but before that, he needs to review with those who came to Egypt who they were, why they came to Egypt, and then how this fits into the bigger story of redemption that God is writing through Moses. So we're going to see in our outline the preface with Jacob's family, the providence in their story, and then the purpose of this for us and for this book. And so we're going to introduce Moses in a, in a couple of weeks when the story introduces him. But the first introduction in Exodus 1.1 is Jacob. And he was also renamed Israel. And so his, his boys are called the sons of Israel. And his story covers Genesis 25 to 50. That's that's half of Genesis is the story of Jacob's life. But then after Genesis, the name Jacob appears over 200 times in the Bible. 
way more than the name Joseph or anyone else in his family. Jacob is a major character. And Jacob is not the hero of this story at all. Jacob, if you know the story, needed redemption, needed deliverance from his own sin big time. Let's review his bio, shall we? Even before he was born, he was a wrestler and a, a rascal. He, he, him and his brother had this, this dynamic, this enmity throughout their life. This Jacob is a man, has a limp from when he stubbornly refused to stop arguing with an angel in human form. He, he had a brother who he looked nothing like. His, his brother was red and hairy and manly and a, a hunter, while Jacob was more, as the text describes him, as a quiet, introverted Mama's boy is really how it describes him. He, he preferred to, to be inside, and he could cook a real mean bowl of stew. We know that from the story. He was born grabbing his brother's heel. Literally, that's his first thing. He's grabbing the heel of his brother coming out the womb. And he spent much of his life tripping up his brother, trying to take advantage of his brother's weaknesses. He steals his brother's birthright. And then he stole his blessing, and he did it by deceiving and flat-out lying to his blind and dying father. He dressed up like Esau, lied to his face, came close, kissed him like Judas, and even blasphemed in the process, saying, Yahweh, your God, has granted me success. Jacob, also known as Israel, needed deliverance, needed redemption. And that's just his early years. He's a bad dad, too. Remember the, some of the stories? Before the story of Joseph and his brothers, he passively did not deal with the crimes of his brothers. In Genesis 34, with Simeon and, and Levi, and he made it just about them. You've brought trouble on me, he complained to them when they did a horrible crime. And I'll talk about it in a little bit when I talk about Simeon and Levi. But Jacob played favorites famously with Joseph, loving them more than the others, giving him that coat of many colors, having him go and spy on them and, and all of that. This is the guy in Exodus 1.1. Who came to Egypt. And let's remember in verses 2 through 3, these are kids from four different women that he had sex with his wives and their servants. So you thought your family had issues. But as, as we're reminded of some of the story, be reminded also if he can work through a family like this, he can work through whatever is going on in your family as well. Amen? But this is the start of the dysfunctional family that God adopted so that he might bless all the families of the earth. That's what he says in Genesis. This is where it starts. Sovereign grace and providence and deliverance is what they needed, and it would change them. And it would make them blessed so that they could be a blessing to others. That's part of the backstory. story. 
as well. So these 12 sons that are mentioned in verses 2 through 3, they became 12 tribes of Israel. But notice first, verse 1 says, they came to Egypt. And if you've been reading Genesis, you know Egypt's not the promised land. In fact, bad things happened in Egypt when Abraham went to, down to, to Egypt. And bad things happened to Joseph when he first went to Egypt. But we'll get back to that a little bit later. But there's this tension now. Israel, it mentions Israel, is not in Israel, the land, the place of blessing. The, the chosen people are not in the chosen place of Canaan. And so there's an exit that's going to be needed. That's what the word exodus means. It just, it's just the Greek word for exit. They need deliverance and exit, but they also need deliverance from their own sin. And so just as a reminder, verse 2 starts with Reuben. Maybe that name is not as familiar to us as Jacob or Joseph. He's the firstborn. Genesis 35 says he committed incest with his dad's concubine. So the mother of his brothers Dan and Naphtali, he lay with. And it says Israel heard of it. Maybe he did this to show his preeminence over his dad and over his brothers, trying to assert his place in the family. And then the next two names in Exodus 1 verse 2, Simeon and Levi. These are the ones who in Genesis 34 led the way in, in, you can't describe it any other way than a genocide on the Shechemites in revenge for their sister and her honor. They thought we're going to do this honor killing. And the way they did it is they, they deceived and disabled all of the men who they mass murdered. And then they captured and plundered the women and children, and their brothers joined in the spoils. All of this under the covenant of circumcision. They said, yes, we'll, we'll let you marry our sister. Just all of your men need to all get circumcised at the same time. And then while they're lying around, unable to do anything, they come and they kill all of them with the sword, using their religious ritual to deceive them, using the very sign that should have set them apart, using that religious ritual to deceive them and then to slaughter the entire people group. These are the guys. And again, maybe you you can think about a wayward child or family member, but not this bad. And I want to say to you, don't give up hope because the story is not over. The story was not over for these, and it's not over for you and your family. What they did was evil, though. And they were evil. So verse 2 mentions Judah. And in Genesis 38, he left his father. He went away from God's people. He married a pagan. He, he was known in that land to... If there was a prostitute sitting by the way, that he would go into her, and that comes into the story. But his sons, both of his sons, were so evil that it says God put them to death. His firstborn son, then the next son for their wickedness. This is Judah. He's the one who convinced the brothers to, to sell out Joseph as a slave so they could get about two pieces of silver each. This is Judah. And they lie to their dad about it. They almost kill their father in the grief. These are not good guys. 
in verses 1 through 4. This is a messed up family. It's an understatement. In need of redemption in Egypt. And the names are brought up here again because this is a redemption story that we're going to see in Exodus. That's what it's all about. And that process began even as they came to, to Egypt. That redemption began in Genesis, but Israel's story too. And then from Egypt would be a story of transformation, a story of deliverance, a story of redemption. Not just a, a rescue of them from others, but a rescue of them from themselves. And it's a story of providence. So look back at Genesis 50, just across the page. And again, remember, this is all on the same page in that old Torah scroll. And just remember, these brothers, even though we see them changing in the story and, and thinking of others and their father and Benjamin and all of that, they had guilty consciences because they, they never forgot in their consciences the evil that they had done to Joseph years later. It's like they had just been waiting for the other sandal to drop. And here it does, Genesis 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for, notice what they say, all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, here's them speaking to him directly. Please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of, of your father. And Joseph wept. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. He, he's been weeping throughout this. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Notice he doesn't just say, it's okay, it's all good, it wasn't all good, it was evil. Yes, he doesn't downplay the evil, you meant evil, but notice, God meant it for good. God's not just using it for good. God meant it for good to, to bring about the many people being saved. And so verse 21, do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. These repentant brothers found forgiveness. They found deliverance for them. And there was deliverance for him as well, I, I would argue, as he trusted providence. There was deliverance from him holding this against them as he trusted providence. So that takes us from the preface of Jacob's family to number two, the providence in their story. And there's so much we could just see from, from the end of, of Genesis 50. And when we need help with, with serious things, 
and sins that have happened. We need to remember we're not God. We also need to remember we don't need to fear. We need to know God's providence is at work through his people, and it's a comfort and it's a, a kindness to us. But what is the providence of God? I've been using this word. Here it is from the Heidelberg Catechism. It's the almighty and everywhere present power of God, where by his hand he upholds and governs heaven, earth, and all creatures, so that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, and all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. That's what we mean by providence. See God's merciful and providential hand. I can't help but think of Daniel Alterton recently. I hope it's okay I share this story. Is it okay? All right. <laughs> Alrighty. His car came off the road. He doesn't remember all the details because he, he was... Uh, but his car came off the, the road, rolled... I saw pictures of it. His, his roof was smashed in. But God was incredibly merciful and providential. And we talk about God's hand guiding even things like that so that he survived. He's okay. He's got some stitches, but praising the Lord. Amen. Praising the Lord for his merciful, providential hand. I think of Don Schwarzberg, who we've been praying for, 97 years old. He's he had multiple blood clots in his leg, had a surgery, and I just talked with him on, on the phone. He's still, we can still keep praying for him, but he, the Lord is providentially, mercifully in his hand, preserving his life. And we see the providence of God in that, but we also see the providence of God in things that we don't consider good things or that don't turn out that way. And so sometimes I think we need to think about our vocabulary like we say, that was a God thing, meaning it's a good thing. But we need to understand God is sovereign over everything, not just the things that turn out good the way we define that. Joseph understood that. Ephesians 1.11 says, God predestines and works all things according to the counsel of his will, and he does all this to the praise of his glory. And then Romans 8.28, it says, God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, so it's for his glory and our good. We talk even as Christians sometimes about a fluke event or accidents or coincidence. We need to understand God's providence is really in control. As Proverbs says, for the casting of the, the dice or even the, the hairs on our head or even a, a bird anywhere on planet Earth can't fall to the ground apart from God's will. There is no impersonal chance. There is only a personal providence at work. There's no blind fate. There's no dumb luck. There is a wise, all-seeing God, who is sovereign. And here's where the old confessions are helpful in clarifying that as God directs and orders all things, the evil itself proceeds only from man and is not from God, the, the evil itself, who being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or the approver of sin. God is not the author of sin. He doesn't approve of it in his revealed will. 
and yet is a part of his sovereign will, even death, which is a result of sin in this world. God is sovereign, and God can bring good in it. And as Joseph dies in the story, and as the others are going to die in this passage, God is still continuing to bring good in it. But as we think of providence, there's maybe a couple subpoints and phrases I can add to this. Number one, God provides and guides all things. And then number two, God overrides evil for good. I think I have a slide for this next one. Just to frame our thoughts on how God in providence provides and guides all things. And then he overrides evil to his good purpose. So Genesis 50:20, you meant evil. Man is responsible. But God, praise God for the but God statements, amen? But God, that's not the last word, but God. But God meant it for good. When sin is happening, that's not the last word. But God meant it for good. Man is responsible. God is providential. God overrides. And verse 20 talks about how he guides events to save lives. So through the fruitful and the barren years, we'll talk about that a little bit more He had prepared Joseph and prepared Egypt and prepared all this for his people and his purposes. And then in verse 21, he provides for them through Joseph. He's going to provide for them. So don't fear. God moves in a mysterious way, as we sang. His wonders to perform. Go back to Genesis 37. And as you do, let me just read the, the Reformation Study Bible on providence. The root meaning of the word providence is to provide for. Sovereign providence stands over and above our actions. God works out his will through the actions of human wills without violating the freedom of those human wills. And it says the clearest example of concurrence that we find in Scripture is in the case of Joseph and his brothers. And so we'll see that here. And, and we also know that God can override. We're going to see in Genesis or in Exodus how he can harden the heart of Pharaoh. We are here because God has changed our hearts and our wills to love him. But in the ordinary circumstances of life, we see God is working in all things and not just permitting evil. We use that language of permitting. He actually purposes good in it. For his people. This kind of blows our mind, but this is what we see in this story. How God provides and guides and overrides evil for good. And it, the story starts with Joseph dreaming of his brothers, bowing down to him. And then he tells them his dream, which didn't go over real well. And they're now determined to make his life a nightmare. And they do. But more than that, look at chapter 37, verse 23 of Genesis. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, and there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. We just listen to that statement. They throw him there, and then they're like, all right, let's eat, guys. But then, looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites, they just looked up like it, it just so happened, but it didn't just so happen because God had a plan with where these Ishmaelites were going and even through the evil in Judah's heart, this is the providence of God. Verse 26, 
Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother? That's what their plan was. But they just throw him in a pit to leave him there. But then he's thinking, let's, let's make some money out of this. Why just kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. So Judah, he's, he's thinking about greed here, getting something out of this. He had an evil motive of greed, but God meant that for good. Because God had a plan so that Joseph wouldn't die. And a plan that they had no idea how they wouldn't die in the future. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh. And again, you think, wow, was that a cool coincidence? No, that's providence right there. Of all the places he could have been sold as a slave on the continent of Africa, they're going down into lower Egypt. It's Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh. So again, this is not coincidence. This is providence. This is not serendipity. This is sovereignty coordinating and orchestrating. So go to chapter 40 where God guided Joseph to Potiphar and he provided a good job. And, but there was evil things said about him that were not true that landed him in prison. And verse 1 says the king's own cupbearer also and baker got in trouble. And, and verse 3 says they end up in the same prison as Joseph. Again, this is no happenstance. This is providence that these officials now to the king, higher up than Potiphar, these are the king's officials now that end up in the same prison with Joseph. And the cupbearer has a troubling dream. And he tells it to Joseph. Chapter 40, verse 12. Joseph said to him, This is its interpretation. The three branches are three days, and three days Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. And so get me out of this house, for I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. This guy's dream comes true. He goes back to the household of Pharaoh, and he forgets. You know, how could you forget that? This guy forgets, doesn't say anything about Joseph. We've got to understand that's a providence. That's a God thing, too. Even though Joseph didn't see good in that short term, that was not something outside of God's plan and purpose for Joseph again to grow and to trust him as he's in that pit for two more years. They say, why two more years? That doesn't seem right. He's probably wondering if God forgot him. Wondering if his prayers are even getting past the ceiling. You ever just wonder that of his cell? Joseph was behind a frowning providence, like that hymn says. It seemed like providence is frowning on him. And yet, through all of that, the reality is God had a smiling face and was working his sovereign will through his never-failing skill, like the song says. And better than any chess grand wizard, God is setting up the board. He's setting it up. He's anticipating every move. 
He's getting ready to, you might say, move a, a rook next to the king. He's actually going to move Joseph next to the king. He's getting ready to move 12 players, if you will, across the board safely. Jacob and his 11 sons. Joseph couldn't see that end game. And neither can we, but we need to trust that God is in control even when we don't see his plan. Some of you know the story of when our son, Mark Joseph, died at three months, and we, we couldn't fathom. We couldn't fathom the why questions. Why would this happen? Why? We didn't know the answers. But someone, I remember, sent us a song. And it was a song about Joseph in the Bible at this point in his life. The Joseph that we named his middle name after. And it's imagining Joseph and his prayers in jail. I thought I did what's right. But that road brought me here. Just when I have given up, the truth is coming clear. Here's what he falls back on. You know better than I. You know the way. So I've let go the need to know why. Because you know better than I. If this has been a test, I cannot see the reason. But maybe knowing I don't know is part of getting through I tried to do what's best, but faith has made it easy to see the best thing I can do is to put my trust in you. That's what Joseph had to do. Oh God, we trust in you. Even when, when, when there's few comforts we see, there's mercies ever new. And Genesis 41 verse 1 says, two years later, it's quite a while Two years later, Pharaoh had a dream. All the king's men cannot interpret what this dream means. But while this conversation's happening, by the providence of God, there's an official of the king, there's a, a cupbearer who hears what's going on, and, and his mind now, God guides him to remember, wait a minute, there's someone here in the kingdom who actually interpreted a dream for me years ago, and, and he, he feels guilty. I, I've, I forgot to bring this up sooner. And, and he, so here's his former cellmate who happens to be in the room with the king while the king is, is trying to find out what his dream means. And, and again, his memory is, is jogged, and he says, there's a guy in prison. Maybe he's still there who can help us with this. He helped me. Again, that is not a chance occurrence. That is providence. And so God shows Joseph the dream. The dream of Pharaoh means seven years of plenty are going to come before seven years of famine that would have wiped out the land. And so Joseph, by the wisdom of God, advises him, what you need to do is store up resources so that you'll be able to survive and, and beyond. This is beyond just you. Others are going to be in need. This is going to be a great famine. And so much bigger than just what was going on in Joseph and his life. And we need to see this. There's often a much bigger picture than what we're going through. Like we want to know the answer for us when it's, it's not about us. It's about much more than us. It's about a big God and his providence and his plan for the world is what we're going to see here. 
And so by the end of this chapter, if you know the story, Joseph interprets the dream, and he's gone from the pit to the palace. He's gone from prisoner to prime minister of the greatest empire in the world at the time. He was already in chains as a slave, and now he's wearing the the gold chain. He's second in command to Pharaoh the second most powerful man in the world now. In fact, Pharaoh says, just by by name and by title, I've I've got to be above you, but no one's going to do anything unless you tell them to. He's really in charge. Pharaoh's almost the figurehead. And in Genesis 41, verse 43, he's riding in on the king's second chariot. You've heard of Air Force One. This is ground force two for Pharaoh. And he's married, verse 51 Look at verse 51, Joseph called the name of his firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. God had delivered him on so many levels. But this isn't just about if you do good things, great, wonderful things are going to happen in your life. God's providence controls that. But here's the big picture, verse 57. Moreover, All the earth came to to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. It's all all the known world to them. This famine and these events are affecting. And so chapter 42, verse 1, When Jacob learned there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? He said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us here that we may live and not die. We're going to die, guys. Go to Egypt. That's the bigger picture in all of this. Jacob and his 12 sons had promises. But they needed to all be alive for those promises to be fulfilled. And for there to be 12 tribes of Israel. Let's think a little bit about their past. They were all shepherds. Being a shepherd's a dangerous job to have your sons in that profession where there's, there's bears and lions and predators. All of them, though, are alive. Joseph is still alive. They thought he was dead, even though they tried to kill him. They'd shipped him off to another continent, but he's still alive. Judah, and again, the, the family's starting to break apart Joseph is gone, and then the next chapter, Judah leaves the family. And that might not seem like a big deal to us. You know, we've got kids go off to college or different things. But no, he, he goes down, he goes away to pagan territory, marries a pagan, and, and really becomes a pagan. And all of his male heirs are dying. His male heirs are getting executed by God for sin. And Judah is going to be the line of the Messiah. All of them need to be alive, but the Messiah is going to come through Judah. And then Simeon and Levi, as mass murderers, what they did in Shechem deserved their death and, and really put all the whole family in jeopardy. It's, it's, it's no small thing that, that this family is still alive, much less all of them. They're all still alive, and they're all about to reunite. They're all going to be back together. But even after surviving all that, they're... They're now going to die in a famine. Even if they had gotten through all of that, this famine would have wiped them out. Except for the fact that there is someone in a prison in Egypt who can interpret dreams. Who is their brother. 
that dreamer, that one who was telling them about dreams, was going to tell Pharaoh about his dreams. So turn to Genesis 45. And God's providence guides them to cross paths with Joseph. And this is a dramatic redemption story. In fact, I'd encourage you, take some time to read Genesis 37 to 50, the whole thing. But, but this is where you see deliverance from their sinful past. You can read the story to see how, how Judah is now changing and thinking of others, and, and Reuben as well. And I think we also see Joseph's deliverance from bitterness. Look at chapter 45, verse 4. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. This is when he's revealing who he is. They didn't know. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Can you imagine that revelation? This guy now, this, this guy is Joseph. This is our brother. They can't believe it. He doesn't look, he's, he looks Egyptian. They've, he's changed his appearance and all that. But verse 5, now, do not be distressed. Don't be angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Don't be angry at yourselves from your past and that evil because God was at work in that. And to save lives, verse 7, And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. You see how he's speaking? He was, he was trafficked off to Egypt. This is human trafficking. That, that's evil. And yet there's a very real sense in which it's God who sent me because he, he wanted to preserve this remnant. He wanted to keep alive for you this, this many survivors. And so, verse 8, So it was not you who sent me here, but God. You meant it for evil, as he says later, but God meant it for good. You sold me as a slave, but God sent me to save lives. This is the magnificence of providence. God uses sin in a sinless way and purposes in it to provide and to guide and to override even evil to good. If that encourages you, say amen. Because this is the world we live in, an evil world, and we have sin we need to be delivered from. And so that's the providence in their story. But thirdly and finally, what is the purpose of all this for us? I want to go back to the Heidelberg Catechism. What's the advantage of knowing God in his providence upholds all things? What's the benefit, the purpose? Here it is, that we may be patient. Let's read this out loud together. Be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and that in all things which may hereafter befall us, we place our firm trust in our faithful God and Father, that nothing shall separate us from his love, since all is in his hand, that without his will they cannot so much as move. Another way to say, God is with us in the good and the bad, and he works all things, including the bad, which is a lot of things, together for the good of those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. And Providence also tells us he, has, he, he tells us he has far bigger purposes than what we can see. And so just look at Genesis 46, verse 2. God spoke to Israel, this is to Jacob, in visions of the night, and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, Here I am. 
Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. That's God's promise that Exodus is going to show us how that's fulfilled. He's going to be with them. He's going to make them into a a great nation in that land. And he's going to bring Israel, Jacob, known as Israel and his descendants, he's going to bring them back up again. That's God's promise that Exodus fulfills. God's purpose statement for the book of Exodus We'll see later, but it's in chapter 9 where he says, All these events, the plagues, judging Egypt is for this purpose, to show you my power, and so that my name, God says, will be proclaimed in all the earth. This isn't just about bringing one nation out of another nation. This is about all nations. That his name, the name of the Lord, this saving Lord, would be proclaimed, his deliverance, his redemption, his providence, all these things that we've seen, that name, his character, would be proclaimed to all the nations. And so this is God's purpose for nations and salvation. What's going to happen in Exodus? It's, it's the, the picture, not just a picture. I would argue it's the picture of deliverance and redemption and the pattern for the rest of the Bible. It's the paradigm of God's power, and it's the platform for missions, proclaiming the name of the Lord to the world and his nature. And it's the plan. Exodus is and going to show us the plan that points us to Christ, points us to the one that Passover points to. It's going to point us to the one who is the Lamb. It's going to point us to the one who said repeatedly of himself, I am. Am. This is a book that's doing all these things, the book of Exodus, that points us to Jesus ultimately. Think of Jesus, who was also rejected by his brothers. Think of how they plotted him to death. In fact, same phrase used of Joseph and Jesus in John 11. He would be sold the price of a slave, he would be stripped of his robe. He would be also falsely accused and imprisoned. But then he would be exalted to reign and to save many. And he would say on the cross, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. And in the ultimate and greatest sense, what those men crucifying Jesus meant for evil. Crucifying the Messiah. God meant that for the greatest good ever. For the converting of Many nations. So don't fear. If God can do all of that, if he can do all of that in these people we just read about, he's going to provide for you. He's going to help you. He's going to be with you even through difficult things. Whatever drama you've gone through or will go through is not worse than what God has brought his people through in the Bible and that grace that could change them can change people like us. You've got to believe in that grace. There's serious problems in Jacob's family. There's serious problems with families in this room. But there is hope. There is hope 
Because Genesis promises in Jacob's family and through their family, blessing for all the families of the earth that will look to Jesus in faith. These 12 unlikely and undeserving sons are changed by grace. And God will use them to change the world. Kind of like 12 men in the New Testament who were descended from these 12 sons. Men Jesus chose and changed and used to change the world. Like that corrupt sellout tax collector, Matthew, seems as unlikely as Judah, who sold out his brother for money. Or the zealot that Jesus chose, a a group known for their radical efforts to overthrow Rome and even assassinate terrorists and murderers, sound a little bit like their descendants, Simeon and Levi. Jesus' disciples sinned greatly, betrayed the Lord. And so they're not just like those guys back in the Old Testament there. There should be hope for us because we are sinners as well. And so look to Jesus for grace that is greater than all sin. Plead with him for forgiveness. Trust him. If he's not yet your Lord and Savior, trust him. And, and there's people up front afterwards who would love to talk with you about that. If you need forgiveness from others or to forgive others, behold the Lamb. That's what we're going to sing in our communion time. But let me pray. Our Father, we pray that you would help us, help us to hope and to trust in you. And we pray, thank you for these stories. We thank you for your providence. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.